Turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, and there are a few stories in the New Testament, a few parables more uh, appropriate in the New Testament to loving our neighbor than the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's a well-known story. I'm not going to belabor all the details. I hope that you remember many of them. We will read through them and uh, talk about them. But the reason that I have picked this theme, loving our neighbor, it's, it's good to focus on what is important. It's good to make sure that we are all following the same set of instructions, so to speak. My wife and I one time decided we wanted to make brownies, and I was trying to be a help. So there I came into the kitchen to make this, these brownies with my wife. And how hard can it be to make brownies from a box? <laughs> right? You buy that box at the store and like you add eggs and milk or something and you stir it up and you put it in the oven. It's not hard. But for some reason, this box had two different sets of instructions with two different sets of ingredients. And my wife was working on one set of ingredients and I was working on a different set of ingredients. I don't know how you can even do that, mess that up. But sometimes we get distracted in our Christian life and the truths are right here in God's word. God's word never changes. Just because our culture changes, just because our society is different, just because we think we know better than God, none of, this is the same. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes we just need to refocus on what's important. So you remember two years ago in 2021, our theme was loving God. And last year, our theme was the power of the Bible, refocusing on looking into God's word and expecting it to minister to us. And now... Uh, this year, loving our neighbor. Sometimes in the absence of clearly defined goals, we can be uh, dis distracted by the daily trivia until we forget why we're even doing what we're doing. So this year, as we think about loving our neighbor, there's not going to be anything new that you're going to discover in the Bible. It's not that all of a sudden this is a, a new commandment, and you didn't realize this is what God wanted from us. It's not like that at all, but just reminding us of what our goals are. And I think it's particularly important. Our goal, one of our goals, subsidiary goal, is to get into this new building in 2023. I just want to share with you an answer to prayer, the second draft, the second draw of our, um, of our uh, grant. $116,000 came in at the end of this past year. And so we have a lot of money toward that goal. And by God's grace and with your faithful giving, we're going to get into that new building in 2023. And I had a pastor several years ago say to me, you know, that's what you need to do. You need to focus on getting into the new building. And uh, I, I thought about that for a bit. And I didn't choose to do that several years ago. And here's the reason why. Because a church is about people, not buildings. The building is just a way to reach people, uh, just a way to minister to people. And you've seen, perhaps, I know I've seen churches who get focused on the building and they forget it's about people. And when they get into the new building, nothing changes because the, the new building isn't the church. The people are the church. And we want to get into this new building with the momentum to reach more people in our community, with the momentum that we want more people to join us in in being faithful and serious disciples of Jesus Christ. And the way we're going to reach them is by loving them. We've said it many times. You've said it in some of your testimonies. People don't care how much you know. 
until they know how much you care. Some years ago, when we were first in, well, a couple years into our ministry in Mongolia, we were reaching out to this particular family, and it's, you know how God brings people across your path, and you can't avoid them, so you might as well minister to them. That was the way this family was. I, I say you might as well minister to them. I don't mean by that that we didn't want to minister to them. I just that you can't help everybody, but some people are just so in your path that you, you, you have to help them. One of them is called the hamburger lady, but I'm not going to tell that story today. This family, a husband, wife, couple of young kids, uh, had moved recently from another town, they weren't from our town where we were, and, and they came with one of their Mongolian circular tents here in national uh, state parks here in California have them. They call them yurts. They're not quite as techy and fancy as those buildings are, but they're these circular tents. They had come with that and a few mats that they set on the floor to sleep on. So I remember the first time I went to visit them, they had a single three-legged stool that was about literally six or eight inches off the floor. And they gave me the stool, and they all sat on the floor. I mean, this family had nothing, nothing. But somewhere along the way, the husband, the father, came across some logs. I don't mean rounds for firewood. I mean the logs that are 10, 15, 20 feet in length. Uh, These happen to be about a foot, maybe 18 inches in diameter, huge logs. And he had them dropped on the property. And his idea was he was going to saw these logs into rounds and then split them so that his family could have heat for the winter. They had a little cast iron, some sort of metal stove in the middle. They were going to burn those, those logs. Now, I say saw because he didn't have a chainsaw. He, was going to, he had a, a cross-cut saw for cutting those, those logs. He was going to cut those logs into rounds and split them. How many of you have ever cut rounds with a handsaw and split them? Okay, a few of you. That's a lot of work. Now, notice I raised my hand. I, I should not have. I've never cut them with a handsaw, but I've split lots of rounds. That's a lot of work all by itself. Well, just about the time the weather turned cold, it must have been late October, early November. And when I say the weather turned cold, I mean it got below freezing and it wasn't going to come up above freezing for months. Just about that time, the uh, father, the husband's father died. And he had to leave his family to go to the countryside. And I said to the wife, he was gone for several weeks. I said to the wife, not long after he left, I said, I'd helped him get the logs delivered. That's a story in itself. But I'd help him get the logs delivered. I said to the wife, how are you heating your house? She said, well, I'm taking that cross-cut saw and I'm just sawing just a few inches off of, of the end of the log so that I can split it really easy. I said to an American friend of mine who had a chainsaw, I said, you have a chainsaw, don't you? He said, yeah. I said, I need your chainsaw. He said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to go cut those, some of the logs into rounds and then split it. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll help you and I'll bring my teenage boys. So it was about four of us. We went over one day and we cut those logs into rounds. My friend cut it with the chainsaw and then we split much of that wood so that his wife would not be cold. Our ministry to them changed a lot after that. Not that we're, our heart changed, although it's, it's when you begin to invest in people, your heart follows. But their heart toward us changed because they saw we were serious about just loving them. We didn't ask for money. We weren't. You just do it because people have physical needs. And when you meet those physical needs, it gives you an opportunity to meet spiritual needs. So let me remind us as a church, our goal is not to build the building. Our goal is to reach people. Our goal isn't to become the biggest church in in Vacaville. Our goal is to reach people. Our goal is not to necessarily be comfortable. 
notice Guillermo just said amen. Okay, hold him to that. Okay, our goal is not to be comfortable. Our goal is to reach people. And sometimes reaching people is uncomfortable. Sometimes people come and, and they join us for worship. And frankly, it, it makes us uncomfortable. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't worship like us. That's okay. Our goal is to reach people, not to be comfortable. So our goals, love God and love neighbor. But again, I don't want you to miss, and I'm going to hit this point several times. We can't accomplish this goal of loving our neighbor without God's grace transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. It isn't me trying harder. It's not me learning to love people better in some uh, 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 better yourself type of book. There's no self-help book on loving people. It's about getting into God's word and seeing God's heart for people and saying, God, would you change my heart so I have the same heart for people? God, would you give me wisdom to know which people to minister to? Because you can't minister to everybody. I can't minister to everybody. It's saying, God, would you give me grace? Would you give me the energy, the spiritual energy to help this person? It's saying, God, I need more perseverance and patience because this person is frustrating me. We get those from God. So let's go to the text here, Luke chapter 10. I want you to notice that a lawyer comes to Jesus. We're going to pick it up in verse 25, Luke 10, 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, that tempted is important because it lets us know that he was not sincere in his question. This was a trick question. If you've ever taught high school students, I believe you've taught high school students, you'll notice that sometimes they come to class with a trick question. Now, sometimes the purpose of the trick question is just to distract the teacher so that the test gets postponed. And sometimes the goal is to make the teacher look bad, or sometimes the goal is to... Trick questions. I know a lot about trick questions. Here, this guy came with a trick question. He was tempting Jesus, and his question was, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I think that word inherit is really strange there. And it's a good word. It's a good translation. I'm not saying the translation is wrong. I'm saying the lawyer's question is a strange one. And here's why. What does anyone do to inherit anything? I mean, if you're going to inherit, it's because you're related to them or they, they loved you and they said, hey, I'm going to leave my house to you. Or I'm going to leave my car to you. You don't do anything to inherit. Over the course of my life, there's been one occasion when I inherited a very small amount of money, $5,000. And you know what I did to get that $5,000? Nothing. I wasn't even, technically, I wasn't even related to the person. They just left that money to me. So what do I do to inherit? That, the do and the inherit there, they don't really match up. And I don't know if the lawyer was, I, I don't know exactly what the lawyer was thinking, but I know it's a bad question. There's a second reason, though, that this is a bad question, and maybe you've already picked up on it. What do I do to inherit eternal life? What does any of us do to get eternal life? And the answer is nothing. There is nothing to do. Now, you'll say, but, but Jesus tells him to do something. You, you're right, he does. Let's see what he says. He said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And he, this is the lawyer answering. The lawyer knew the law. But the lawyer didn't know if he had eternal life. 
Interesting, isn't it? The lawyer answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. We saw Jesus say substantially the same thing in Mark 12. And thy neighbor as thyself. And he, Jesus, said unto him, the lawyer, and Jesus said unto the lawyer, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. And a cursory reading, you say, well, here's Jesus. He's saying, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, just love your neighbor, love God, you're good. But, but think about what that means. Can any of us love God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength perfectly? Can any of us love our neighbor perfectly? And the answer is no. It would be as if Jesus said to the lawyer, okay, you want, to, you want eternal life? Jump over that building in a single bound. And the lawyer say, oh, okay. No, the lawyer missed the point. Jesus' point wasn't there something to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus was making the point that we can't inherit eternal life in our own efforts. The first thing any of us have to realize is that we'll never earn eternal life. We'll never inherit it because we were born in the right family or born in the right country, or my parents always brought me to church. None of that will cause us to inherit eternal life. There's one way to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the life. The Bible says, he who has the Son has life. But I don't want to belabor that. I'm going to come back to that here in a second. Here's the lawyer's answer, verse 29. He, the lawyer, willing to justify himself. He's trying to make himself look good here. He's trying to see if he can't find a way to work this out so that he can love his neighbor as he should. And you know what comes to the lawyer's mind? He says, you know what I'll do? I'll just restrict that definition of labor to a very, to, I'll just restrict that definition of neighbor to a very small group. And I can love those people. I remember an elementary teacher one time sharing with a group of teachers. She said, you know, I asked my students one time, is it harder to love God or to love your neighbor? And my elementary school students always said it's harder to love my neighbor. Because in their little minds, their neighbor was someone they could see and fight over a toy with. But God didn't really have any bearing on them. I believe it's harder when we understand what God calls us to. It's harder to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength than it is to love our neighbor. But both of them are equally impossible. But here the lawyer, for some reason, thought, okay, I've got the loving God part down. I tell you what, I'll ask him this question, who's my neighbor? And I'll restrict my neighbor to the smallest possible group, and maybe I can love those people. That's what it means he was willing to justify himself. Now, notice Jesus doesn't answer. Well, your neighbor is, and mention a group of people. Look what he says. Follow along as I read out loud, verses 30 and on. Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he, the priest, saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. 
But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence. That would have been the equivalent of two days' wages. He took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Now, I want you to notice in this uh, story that there's an analogy, this parable, that there's an analogy to our own salvation. This man, the man who was beaten, robbed, the Bible says he was left half dead. Ephesians 2, 1 tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually speaking, we were like that fella on the side of the road at one point in our lives where we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was nothing we could do for ourselves. That man who was beaten, left for dead by the side of the road, was not going to recover and get up and make it to safety without somebody intervening. And the priest came by. You know this story. The priest came by. The priest would have been the highest echelon of, uh, of, of the Jewish society. He would have been working in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. He's headed down to Jericho or he's headed up from Jericho, but he travels between Jericho and Jerusalem. Jericho it, at this time, first century um, uh, uh, Judea, this would have been Jesus time, first temple period. Jericho was where a lot of rich people lived. Herod had his palace, one of his palaces there. And the reason they lived in Jericho was it was warm in the winter. So they'd be up in Jerusalem doing their duty and they'd go down to Jericho on their days off. And then they could travel from Jericho up to Jerusalem to do their work and, and so forth. So they traveled this road a lot. Well, the priest saw him. The Bible's clear. Jesus told this story clearly. The priest saw the man. It's not that he walked by and was oblivious. He saw the man and thought, nope, I'm not going to help. And he passed by on the other side. He stayed away from him. The second man who came by was a Levite. The Levite would have been just below the priest. Remember, priests were all related to Aaron, who was of the tribe of Levi. Levites were all of the tribe of Levi, and they helped the priest. They did the, sort of, so to speak, the dirty work so that the priest could be freed up to do the, the more ritual labors. And this Levite, who ought to have been a spiritual person, saw the man walk by on the other side. But a Samaritan came. And it's interesting that in this analogy that Jesus gives to our own salvation in this parable, we needed, excuse me, this man, the man beaten and left for dead by the side of the road, he needed someone to intervene. He needed a savior, someone to rescue him, a rescuer. There was no 911 to call, but he needed somebody with, with some rudimentary uh, emergency medical technician skills. He needed a paramedic to come by and help him. And in this case, it was a, it, it was a Samaritan in this analogy, Jesus is our rescuer because he came by, he saw our need and he brought us healing and he brought us relief. But he didn't just leave us by the side of the road. Notice the Samaritan puts the man, the beaten man on his own donkey and he brings the man to safety. And while that man is at the inn, he cares for him and Jesus cares for us. And then he does something, the Samaritan does something that is also illustrative of what Jesus does for us. He pays a price so the man can stay at the inn. Jesus paid the price for our salvation. And here's the part I love. 
Look with me at verse 35. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence. He gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again. Jesus is coming again for you and for me. I love the analogy. I love the analogy. We could spend a lot of time thinking about how this is similar to our own salvation. But I want to help you understand the parable in light of the lawyer's question. The lawyer's question again, who is my neighbor? Now, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a dangerous one. And as I read several commentaries, some uh, commenters thought that, that this was a true story. There is a story in Jewish literature about a man traveling this road between Jericho and Jerusalem, who's beat up and he's left for dead, and a Samaritan comes by and helps him. But whether the story is true or not is not important. The lesson that Jesus is teaching is still the same. This man is traveling on a dangerous road. He's attacked, he's robbed, he's left for dead. There's two markers in in Jewish society at that time. There were a lot of different people. There were, of course, observant Jews, Jews that did their best to keep the law. It wasn't going to save them, but they did their best to keep the law. There were non-observant Jews. They didn't care about the law at all. There were Gentiles. There were a lot of Gentiles at this time in Jerusalem and in Jericho. And there were, even worse than Gentiles, there were Samaritans. Samaritans were the lowest group in this ranking of people. And you could tell who someone was two ways. Number one, by the way they dressed and by the way they spoke. If you were an observant Jew, you would have primarily spoken Hebrew. If you were a non-observant Jew, you would have primarily spoken Aramaic. If you were a Gentile, you probably spoke Greek or Latin. And if you were a Samaritan, of course, you would have spoken the Samaritan language. And that's how they identified each other. So if you heard somebody, if you were an observant Jew and you heard somebody speaking Latin or Greek, you didn't hang out with those people because the Jews kept to themselves. And remember the lawyer's question, he's trying to limit his neighbor to the smallest possible group. My guess is he was hoping Jesus would say, well, the Jews that try to keep the law, that's who your neighbor is. Well, that's a small group, very much like me, the lawyer would have thought, and I feel comfortable with that. He thought maybe Jesus would expand the group to Jews. They, they maybe spoke Aramaic when they were doing their business day by day. And yes, they dress a little bit differently, but at least they were Jews. But Jesus is going to bring into this story a Samaritan, the absolute worst of the worst, the hated one. And the worst part of this, he was going to make the Samaritan the hero of the story. Notice it's not a Samaritan who's beaten and left for dead and a Jew comes by and helps him. It's a Jew who's beaten and left for dead. And a Samaritan comes by to help him. But notice, because he's been robbed of his clothes and because he's half dead, he's either unconscious or barely conscious, there's two things that don't identify this man. Number one, he doesn't have any clothes to identify whether he's an observant Jew, a Jew, a Gentile, or a Samaritan, and he's not speaking. So whoever helps this man can't care about class or ethnicity. He's helping him because he's a human being. And let's not miss that point. We don't help people because they're like us. We don't help people because we think someday they might be able to help us. We help people because they're human beings. They're made in the image of God. And God loves them. We don't need to know what ethnicity they are. We don't need to know their political background. We don't need to know what kind of job they do or what their their, uh, uh, 
pronouns are, preferred pronouns are, we're going to help people because they are made in the image of God. It's interesting, too, that in this story, the two people that pass by are very religious people. One is a priest. One is a Levite. And how often it is that we who claim the name of Jesus Christ can be so quick to walk past opportunities we have to minister to people because they don't fit into our idea of the people that we minister to. There's a true story about Moody, D.L. Moody, great famous evangelist of about 150 years ago. He was traveling with his, um, his, uh, the singer, D.B. Towner, the man who wrote Trust and Obey. D.B. Towner and Moody were traveling together, and of course this was 150 years ago, so anyone who wanted to go any distance would have been traveling by train. And he's on a train, in a train car, and there's another man in this train car who has a black eye, has some injuries, he's obviously been in a fight, and the most likely reason he's been in a fight is because he's obviously, he's also obviously intoxicated. He's drunk. And he recognizes Moody, who's a famous evangelist, and, 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 he, and he starts doing his best impression as a drunk man, his best impression of singing songs that were in Moody's evangelistic crusades. But he's drunk. He's doing a terrible job of it. And Moody said to Towner, he said, listen, this guy's annoying. Let's go find a different train car to sit in. Towner left, went up and down looking for train cars. There weren't any other seats, so they came back, and they were just putting up with this guy. And finally, when the conductor came through to check tickets, Moody pointed out this drunk man to the conductor and said, isn't there anything you can do about him? Conductor said, sure. Conductor took him back to the employee car where there was some, uh, a place there. He could wash him up, washed him up, got some food in his belly, probably gave him some coffee, let him sleep back there in the employee car for a while. And when several hours later the drunk man came back, he was no longer drunk and he was calm and he was cleaned up. And Moody said that was a rebuke to him because he had preached this very message about the Good Samaritan. But when it came his time to do something for someone, he didn't want to do it. Now, I can tell you why Moody didn't want to do it. I'm guessing, but I I can guess why he didn't want to do it because I've been in his place. After you've finished a crusade, after you're done preaching and you're on the road, you just want to be left alone. You don't want to be bothered. And isn't it at those moments when we don't want to be bothered that God often brings someone to us that he wants us to love? So I'm asking you to open your eyes, not to the easy opportunities, not to the obvious opportunities, but to the unlikely opportunities that God's going to bring your way in 2023 and give you an opportunity to love your neighbor. Now, I want you to notice what this Samaritan does for this man. First of all, he doesn't just walk by him. He walks over to him. And if we're going to ever love people and help them, we're going to have to spend time in close proximity with them. And frankly, that's not always comfortable. I heard about a missionary to Spain. He went to Spain and he decided he was never going to eat a meal with someone who drank alcohol. He never ate with the Spanish people. Well, wait a minute. Aren't we called to love our neighbor? Our neighbor isn't going to look like us. He's not going to act like us. And sometimes we're going to be in uncomfortable situations. Many a time in Mongolia, in fact, almost invariably, if I visited a home where the The husband, the man of the house was not a Christian. If I visited a home where the man of the house was not a Christian, invariably alcohol would be served. Now, I didn't drink it. 
I said, no, thank you. I don't drink. But it was there. And if I was going to minister to Mongolians, I was going to be uncomfortable because sometimes drunk people can be fascinating and they can be terrifying. What are we going to do when we see the man in need? Are we going to cross over the street and help him? He bound up his wounds, the Bible says, pouring in uh, oil and wine. He bound up his wounds. Now, early in, in junior high, early in my education, I, I thought for a time about getting into the medical field. And then I had a chance to work as a janitor at a hospital, and I realized I didn't like the sight of blood. And it's really hard to work as a doctor or a nurse if you can't stand the sight of blood. So I chose a different career path. This guy, he got it into it. I'm sure he had blood and pus on his hands by the time he got done ministering and binding up this man's wounds. But he didn't let him stop. He didn't let that stop him from loving this man. He poured in his own wine and his own oil. These would have been valuable commodities that he's never going to get back. (laughs) You don't pour in wine and oil and then somehow catch it on the other side and use it for anything. He gives of his financial resources. He put the wounded man on his own beast, on his own donkey. That's the beast he was riding from Jerusalem to Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem. If he was going from Jericho to Jerusalem, it would have been uphill 17 miles. That's great if you have a donkey. It's terrible if you have to walk. But he didn't let that stop him. He was willing to give up his own comfort, his own comfort in order to minister to this man. I want you to notice something else, though, especially if he's traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem as a Samaritan, he's going into enemy territory, isn't he? He's not going where he's going to be accepted. In fact, he's going to be rejected simply for being a Samaritan. And he could have said, listen, I'd love to help this guy. In fact, I'll stop. I'll bind up his wounds, but I'm not going to take him into town because they won't understand. It's like those old B-Western movies. And how do you know they're B-Westerns? Because all the bad guys wear black hats. And all the good guys wear white hats. And imagine the cowboy with the black hat riding into town with a guy on the back of his horse with two bullets in him. What is everyone going to assume? The guy with the black hat shot him. Here's a Samaritan coming into town with a guy beat up and robbed on the back of his donkey. He's already an outcast. He's already unwanted. It's a perfect excuse to blame him for this man's condition. So he gives up his safety. He gives up his safety. He took care of the man throughout the night. It says he took care of him in verse 34 and on the morrow when he departed. He took care of this man throughout the whole night. Now, I didn't have a very good night's sleep last night. There were two reasons. Number one was somebody was shooting off fireworks at midnight. I have no idea what they were thinking. And number two, about 3.30 in the morning, a large piece of mirror fell off my wall and crashed to the floor. And all I heard was nothing. But my wife was so kind, she woke me up and said, there's been a terrible noise. You've got to investigate. I found my dad was investigating. We both were assuming intruder. But it wasn't. It was just this fallen mirror. And then I couldn't go back to sleep. I hate missing a night's sleep. But here's a Samaritan. What is he doing? He's spending all night taking care of this man that he doesn't even know. 
and a man who, if he knew that his rescuer was a Samaritan, would have hated a Samaritan simply for being a Samaritan. He left money with the innkeeper to treat the man. And he promised to return. I'm going to come back. I think it's a subtle warning to the innkeeper. Hey, don't take the money and leave the man without care. Because I'm going to come back. I'm going to check up. So let's draw some conclusions from this passage. The first conclusion that we can draw is that Ministering to others begins with compassion. It says that he had compassion on him. Verse 33. Begins with compassion. Compassion is your hurt in my heart. Compassion. True story. uh, In a book that I read, true story about a a little boy and his father. They had gone to the circus. Now, this would have been decades ago because nobody goes to the circus anymore, okay? It's cruelty to animals. So we don't have circuses typically. But this is back in the days when people went to circus. And the other reason I know was because they were planning to get into the circus with $20. And you don't get into a circus with $20. But here's the story. The father, his son, they were standing in line all excited. They were going to get to go to the circus. And there was a family right in front of them, husband, wife, father, mother, and eight children. Eight children, they were so excited, you could hear the kids talking about what they were imagining they were going to see. It was obvious that they'd never been to to a circus before, but they were all excited, talking about all the different things they'd see, all the different acts. And as they were moving up in line, they were following these kids' excited conversation, and the, the father of this family, large family of 10, got to the ticket window. He said, I'd like to have a ticket for two adults and eight kids. And the ticket person told him how much it was going to be. And then you could see on the father's face that he didn't have the money. He said, how much? Ticket ticket, uh, seller told him again. Well, the man who's telling the story said he saw his father drop a $20 bill on the ground. And then he picked up that $20 bill. And to the father of the eight children, he said, does this belong to you? Now, everybody knew what was going on. The ticket seller, the father, the kids probably didn't know. But the father looked back and with tears in his eyes, he said, thank you. And that got them into the circus. But you know what that meant for the young boy and his father? That was their money to get into the circus. And they went home. But it taught that young boy about compassion for other people. Ministering to others begins with compassion. Why were the priest and the Levite able to walk by? Because they had no compassion. Now, I'm sure you, you know the story well enough. Probably they were concerned about ritual purity. Maybe they were on their way to Jerusalem and they had duties that they didn't want to stop and take care of a man because they'd missed their duties. But there are some things that are more important than ritual purity and ritual duties. Our ministry to people begins with compassion. Second thing I want you to notice, another conclusion I draw from this is we're going to need some resources if we're going to minister to other people. This Samaritan who was passing by had oil and wine and he had a donkey. And we're going to need some resources if we're going to help other people. And in the Bible, the oil is often associated with the Holy Spirit. So one person I see in this story, in this analogy, in this parable, is a Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit if we're going to minister to people. 
we're going to need God's love to genuinely care about people that are hard to care about. And you may have even been with some of those people in this past week because we've had a holiday. Some people you have to get together with once a year because they're family, but you don't really want to. Where do you find the heart to love them? You find it in the heart of God. Maybe you have a neighbor or you have a coworker, someone you have to go and see every single day of the week that you wish you didn't have to see. Where are you going to find the love to love them? You're going to find it in the heart of God, not your own heart. And you may need to go to God every day and say, God, give me your love to love my neighbor as myself today. You're going to need God's wisdom to know whom to help and how to help them. Because frankly, you can't help everybody. There are people who come to me, they say, Pastor, I need this kind of help, and I can't help them there. And I have to ask God for wisdom to know how to respond. Maybe it's sometimes, often, it's pointing them in a different direction. So-and-so may be able to help you, or this organization may be able to help you. Sometimes it's saying, listen, you're just going to have to get together with God and your Bible, and you're going to have to work this out. I can't always help them. I need God's wisdom. I need God's grace to minister to the needs of others, even when our own needs are so great. It just seems so often that people come to us needy when we are already overwhelmed with our own circumstances. So we're going to need God's love, God's wisdom, God's grace. But I want you to notice Jesus' question at the end. Look with me at verse 36. Jesus asks the lawyer now a question. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves. He didn't directly answer this man's question, which was, who was my, who is my neighbor? He switched it up and he said, who do you think was the neighbor to the beaten man? He was, the lawyer was trying to restrict the meaning of neighbor to this smallest possible group. And you know what? That's what we are so content to do. I'll love people that are just like me that talk like me, that look like me, that go to the same church as me. I'll love those people. But the other people, how do I love them? Well, I'll tell you how we love them. It's by getting the heart of God. The Bible says that Jesus was known for eating with publicans and sinners. He took time to talk to a Samaritan woman. This was not a man who would have been approved of by the religious leaders of his day, but Jesus had God's heart. In fact, Jesus was God, don't Don't misunderstand, but Jesus had God's heart. And the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Samaritan, let me me draw your attention to it this way. Let me bring it out this way. When the Samaritan left either Jericho or Jerusalem on the morning of this trip, was he the neighbor to the beaten man by the side of the road? And the answer is no. They didn't even know each other. They weren't friends. They didn't live next door to each other. That was just Jesus' point. The Samaritan didn't even know that this man was his neighbor until he saw him beaten and bruised and left for dead and naked by the side of the road. And it's a reminder to us that we often don't even know who our neighbor is until God brings us face to face with that person and says, this is the person I want you to minister to. 
So quickly, and, and I know I'm running out of time, but there are five, five lessons that I think we can learn from this. Some of them are repeats, but let me hit them one more time. First lesson, don't try to trick God. The lawyer came to Jesus to tempt him to try to trick him. That is a bad idea. That's a bad idea. Often when I taught high school, I let my students ask some of the strangest questions. Because once the question got out there, often they would come and look over their face like, I can't believe I just asked that in front of the whole class. And they were the ones that ended up looking silly. And it helped them think ahead of time. In fact, I understand at lunch, I taught the period right after lunch. And I understand at lunch, they would sometimes get together and say, what question can we ask to distract our teacher? And they'd go over a list and say, that's a dumb question. Ah, that's a dumb question. Oh, this is a good question. Let's circle that one. And then who's going to ask it? Okay, this guy will ask. Tomorrow you'll ask it. And they would, they would plan. They would strategize. Listen, there is no way. They, sometimes they would trick me. I'll, I'll admit, sometimes they would trick me. But nobody ever tricks God. The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Don't try to trick God. Here's the second one. Our, our service to our fellow man is more important than pious ritual. True story. A couple of months ago, somebody was not in their place on a Sunday morning. I'm looking around. They're missing. Made a quick phone call. Hey, what is up? What is going on? The person said, well, my neighbor, literal neighbor, person who lives in where I live, had a flat tire today. I'm helping them change a flat tire. I said, you help them change the flat tire, I'll find someone else to do your responsibility. Listen, if you need to miss, just call me. Just affect, text me. Call me. Let me know where you're at. But take time to love your neighbor. Don't say to your neighbor, hey, I'd love to help you, but I got to be at Sunday school in five minutes. Hey, I tell you, what, why don't you come to Sunday school next week? Because you know what your neighbor's going to say? Anybody who doesn't have time for me and my need, I'm not going to go to church with them. Service to our fellow man is more important than pious ritual. One of the few things that I will miss my time with God for each day is if somebody is in serious need and that needs to be met when I'm planning to spend time with God. Because service to our fellow man is more important than pious ritual. Uh, another one, and I know I'm rushing through these. Most of our opportunities to serve come outside these four walls. Now, you and I, were extremely comfortable serving here because we come here every Sunday and Wednesday nights we're here and we, we know each other and we love each other and, and, and so it's easy to serve here. But most of our opportunities to serve our neighbor come outside these four walls, which means we have to have eyes open. Jesus said to him again, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? In other words, which one became a neighbor to him? Neither the Levite nor the priest nor the Samaritan were proximate neighbors. They didn't live in the same neighborhood as this man. They became neighbors when they walked across the scene and they saw him. And in two cases, they said, oh, nope, not, not my business. And in only in one case did a man cross the road and minister to the man in need, and became his neighbor. Most of our opportunities will occur outside of these four walls. So are we looking for those opportunities? Lesson number four. Parents, fathers, mothers, seek to build families, seek to build homes where service is encouraged and respected. Now, what do I mean by that? Have you ever noticed, and I... I have noticed, and perhaps you have too, so often people can be divided up into two groups. Those people who are looking for opportunities to serve others, 
and those people who are looking for an opportunity to be served. I think much of that, not all of that, but much of that is learned in the home. If your home is one where dad comes home from work and he sits in his easy chair and he expects everybody to bring him stuff and to be left alone so he can just do whatever he wants for the next X hour, next number of hours, is it any wonder that our children are working to get to a point in life where they can finish their job and go home and be left alone and unbothered for X number of hours? But if you're a father, you go home and the first thing you do when you get home is assess where the family is at and what can be done and who needs help and jump right in and serve others, guess what? Your children will learn to jump right in and serve others. So let's build homes like that. So often we struggle to reach out and minister to others because our homes are just a buzz of turmoil and and chaos, and we don't have the emotional energy to minister to anyone else. So let's build homes where God's peace is experienced, where instead of selfish selfish expectation of service, we're looking for ways to serve others. And then we will carry that attitude outside of our homes. I wanted to spend more time developing this, but let me go on to the fifth lesson we learn. Our faith is seen in our work. Our faith is seen in our lives. Now, I don't have a faith meter that I can point at your heart and see how much faith you have. I don't have that. I'm very glad you don't have one to point at my heart. But I do know this. We can see the fruit of each other's faith and how we serve and how we live. Here in verse 37, Jesus says, Go and do thou likewise. In big seminary terms, we call it theology and praxis. Not practice, praxis. Why do we have to come up with strange words? that nobody else knows, so that we can feel like we've got our money's worth at seminary. That's why. Praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, praxis, theology and praxis. Theology is, I know what God's word says. Praxis is, I do it. We all are going to leave today knowing that God's word says, love your neighbor. You're going to have some ideas. In fact, maybe if, as, as I've been preaching, the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart a person or a family or, or someone at work or a neighbor has laid on your heart someone that you need to be looking for ways to serve. You need to be the Samaritan who crosses the road and gets your hands dirty and spends your oil and your wine, puts that person on your donkey. You say, that person doesn't deserve it. Let me remind you, we don't deserve God's grace to us. That's theology. It's in our heads. Praxis. It needs to come out in our hands. And what we do. My guess is very few of you came today without some idea of what the story of the Good Samaritan was about. And we would have all agreed that it means we ought to love our neighbor. And our neighbor could be anybody. We all know that. But now we have to live it. And let me remind you again, we're not going to live it in our own strength. I'm not here to motivate you that you can do better. You and I, we can't do better. We need to be channels of God's love to other people. We need to be channels of God's grace to other people. We need to be channels of God's forgiveness to other people. We're just going to take the goodness that God gives us and let it flow, overflow in our lives and flow out into the lives of others around us. But it's going to be seen, that faith in God's grace, in God's forgiveness, in God's love, in God's wisdom, that faith is going to be seen in our hands, 
in our actions, in our work, in our lives. Father, thank you for the opportunity to consider for a minute this story of the Good Samaritan. And you have been so good to us. For us, you were that rescuer who came along when we were dead in trespasses and sins and we could not save ourselves. And you brought us to safety, even at your own expense. You cleaned us up. You set us back on the road to health. You healed and brought relief to our troubled hearts, our guilty hearts. We thank you. Now we pray that we could be that same loving rescuer to the folks that are around us, physically and spiritually, meeting needs that we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears and sense, and meeting those spiritual needs that you open our eyes to. Lord, help us to go and do likewise, not to merely be theological about this, not to just know the truth, but to live the truth. And we need your grace We need your wisdom, we need your love, we need your strength to live this message, this parable out. So help us, we pray. Open our eyes this week and in 2023 to the opportunities we will have to love our neighbor. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.